0: When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Welcome to the Edge of Sports podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week, we are speaking to the co-author of Jim Brown's best-selling 1989 memoir, Out of Bounds, Steve DelSone. I'm going to talk to Steve about the film One Night in Miami and how Jim Brown was portrayed. We're also talking to Lee of The Washington Post about the passing of his dear friend and a friend of ours here at the podcast, Sekou Smith. Uh, just an incredible journalist, an incredible NBA reporter, who died from the coronavirus at age 48. I also have some choice words about the idea of Florida getting the Olympics and more. But first, let's talk to Steve Delson. So, you co-wrote this, you know, best-selling memoir Out of Bounds with Jim Brown. Before we talk about one night in Miami and the issues around it. I just Who was who the Jim Brown that you knew?
1: Well, that's a good question. You know, kind of a tough question. Um, complicated. Um, one of the things that surprised me when I spent time with him was that he had a sense of humor. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was one of the reasons I think people liked the book because he was funny in it. And mm-hmm. people didn't see that side of him. Because typically when he was on TV, say, you know, for a short soundbite, he was usually angry about something. Um, and he was very gracious to me. You know, I went there a couple times a week for, uh, I think, a
0: summer probably to do the interviews for the book. You went to the, the, the famous slash infamous house in West yeah. Hollywood, overseeing the yeah. city?
1: Yeah, yeah where he had lived
0: for a long time. It was always
1: kind of an interesting. Typically when I went there there was nobody there, you know, but sometimes people were there and there was always kind of an interesting mix of people. Um you know what drew me to him was not so much as far as writing a book with him. I was less intrigued by what he had done as a football player even though he was obviously one of the best players of all time. I was more interested in his role in the civil rights movement and, you know, particularly at the intersection of sports and race. um, You know, I'd always been interested in that. I still am today. And he and, you know, Muhammad Ali and Bill Russell and Jabbar, you know, were very important. They were all ahead of their time. You know, nobody was kneeling during the anthem in the late sixties when Brown played and you know, Brown was talking about black businesses and keeping money inside the community. You know, economic development. So I was always interested in that whole group of guys that, and they all knew each other too. Um, you know, and I, but I'd also read about the allegations against him, as they related to him hitting women or putting his hands on women. And it was typically in you know newspaper clippings, you know, because this was pretty much pre-internet. And I didn't know exactly what to believe or not to believe you know, because Brown was this outspoken black guy and a lot of those newspaper guys were white and the cops were typically white. You know, he had a long running conflict with the LAPD and he said they fabricated certain charges. Um, And even when we did the interviews for the book, you know, in some cases he said he was flat out innocent and in others he said that things had been exaggerated. And I was about, 29 or 30, I think, when I wrote the book, or I interviewed him. And in retrospect, I think I was naive um, or maybe so enthralled with what he did on the field, but even more so in the civil rights movement, that I just kind of said to myself, well, you know, Jim Brown was flawed. Mm -hmm. And I think in retrospect, that was a cop out on my part. You know, that Mm -hmm. wasn't fair to the women who accused him of things. You know, the old saying, where there's smoke, there's fire. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, that's usually true, you know. And so I doubt he was innocent of everything. I also don't doubt that the LAPD may have trumped up certain things. Um, Their relationship with the black community is pretty well documented. Um, But I think looking back, because I've thought about this, I should have pushed him harder in the book. And I should have challenged him more in the book on particularly on certain allegations. And that's always bothered me. Um, You know, Mm -hmm. a little bit about that book, you know, and, and it's different too, as you know, you know, it's kind of like the nature of the beast when you're writing your own book, Mm -hmm. like you wrote a book on Brown. um, It's a different book completely because you're interviewing other people. Um, When you write a book with somebody, it's their book and their story and their point of view. And you, you know, you need to push them obviously, but uh, yeah, I think the book was flawed to a degree. And that I think I may have believed some things he told me that maybe in
0: retrospect,
1: I should not have.
0: Wow. And I'll tell you, you know, the, the, the I was able to interview Jim Brown a little bit for the book I did. And it's, I always, I read out of bounds numerous times and it's so interesting because we're talking to the same person but 30 years apart so it's like it's the same person but it's also not and I can tell you just I don't know how far you would have even gotten trying to press him more about his relationships with women because I tried to do that and it was a closed book he would not go there at all Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, when we talked, one of the things that he talked about a lot and I actually felt there was validity there, um, was his relationship with the LAPD and uh, the black community's relationship with the LAPD. And there were some of those allegations, some of those incidents happened in LA. And I think maybe I got fixated a little bit too much on that, um, aspect of
0: it. Um, but I could see yeah, why he, was I mean, an he says, in your, guy
2: book, to be with.
0: He says in your book explicitly that he thought he could be killed any day by the LAPD. I mean, that, that was a, a very explosive charge. And your book comes out just a couple years before, you know, the L.A. uprising in 92 after Rodney King. So, you know, there, there's a there's a prophetic kind of fire. To what he was saying about the LAPD that, at that time.
1: Yeah. And. You know, we saw that well documented in that you know that well well documented period. But there was that great uh, documentary on ESPN, um, you know, about the whole O.J. Simpson saga.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes,
1: and how you know, you know, him getting off may have been tied to. The injustice that took place in L.A., you know, in the black community as related to the LAPD. So none of that is to exonerate Jim Brown for the things that if he did, in fact, do. Um, But just a little bit of context about a couple of situations where he said the charges were not what they uh, were not based on reality. They were trumped up.
0: So... Very broadly, uh, what what did you think of One Night in Miami?
1: Well, the first, I didn't think it was as good as the reviews. You know, I think it got 90-plus something on Rotten Tomatoes. I definitely didn't, I wouldn't have given it in the 90s. The first 30 minutes, I felt it was kind of contrived, very contrived. As they were setting up the characters, I just kept thinking, I'm watching a movie, you know, uh, mm-hmm. Which is always, you know, one of the barometers when you're watching something that's based on real life. Does it feel real? You know, like Selma, for instance, felt very real and authentic, in my opinion, you know, the movie Selma. Um, so I felt it was pretty contrived early on, like bad enough to turn off almost. But then about an hour in, I think, um, it got good when, particularly when Malcolm X and Sam Cooke started arguing. And, you know, I thought those were the two best performances by the actors, especially the actor who played Malcolm. Mm. I thought he was terrific. Um, I couldn't remember where I had seen him before. And it turned out it was Peaky Blinders. Oh, that's right. He was, in. he was, yeah. So, you know, I thought he was great because um, there was kind of an underlying sadness to his character. You know, and he talked about the fact that, you know, he was a target. Um, and so there was, you know, that was kind of heartbreaking. I thought throughout just knowing what would ultimately happen to him and his character's kind of acknowledgement of what would happen. And, um, you know, I also thought it was interesting because I always thought of Malcolm X as kind of a rock star, you know, which Mm -hmm. he was. Um, but these guys, you know, he's with Ali, he's with Jim Brown, he's with Sam Cooke, and they were almost talking to him like he was a nerd, (laughs) the guy who stopped talking politics that was kind of interesting and entertaining the way they looked at him versus how, you know, most people looked at him as a iconic figure. And then, uh, you know, the ending I thought was great with Sam Cooke, you know, singing, The Change Is Gonna Come, you know, which is one of the best songs of all time. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, but I think you're looking at Malcolm X when the movie ends, listening to that song. So that was powerful. So it was, you know, I thought it was good for sure. Very good, but uh, not as good as I was
0: Expect it to be. What did you think? Um, no, I, I thought I thought it built over the course of the film, um, and it got better as it went along. Especially as I became more acclimated to the actors playing the role. I thought, you know, the the portrayal of Malcolm X. We don't get a human Malcolm X in cinema usually. Um, in even Denzel's storied performance, you don't get what Kingsley Benadire brought to the table. Um, So I thought that that was very special, seeing the Malcolm on screen. And the other thing about it that I'll say that I thought was really positive is you you don't really get men on screen very much being just friends and human with one another in that kind of way. I don't know. There's something about the camaraderie and the love on display that I felt like I hadn't seen since something like Diner, you know, (laughs) like it had this feel of. Of people just talking very naturally to one another, which took a second for me to get acclimated to because these are such icons. But I yeah. felt like it yeah. found its groove and um, and I got a lot out of it. And obviously, I'm obsessed with the history of it. So I was looking at it through those eyes as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm reading
1: a biography. I agree with all, I'm reading a biography of Malcolm right now, the newest one, The Dead Arising.
3: And
1: hmm. I put it down here. You know, like 700 pages, like all big biographies, and so I put it down for a couple of days. <laughs> as soon as the movie, ended, I picked it up again. Wow. So yeah, it's a good movie, and it's just, I mean, it's definitely timely.
0: I mean, I, I mean, he developed. did. He, I didn't think he was given a great deal to do. But what did you think of Aldous Hodge's performance as Jim Brown? I
1: thought his character was the the
0: The, the performance was
1: fine. Uh, it was okay. I but I agree with you. I thought that character in particular was kind of just a sketch mm-hmm. and not that well, really not that well written. He had the least, you know, to work with. I think. You know, I think it's really a movie about Sam Cooke and Malcolm X, really. Mm-hmm. You know, is in there for comic relief, kind of. Brown's just there. It's really, I think, it becomes a movie about Malcolm X and Sam Cooke and what it means, you know, to, you know, Malcolm X had one view, obviously, of what it meant to be active, and Sam Cooke had another. Um, Those guys were the heart of the movie. And of course, it was Leslie Ogden Jr. who played Sam Cooke from Hamilton. As the movie got going, I started to appreciate his performance more and more.
0: Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but in Out of Bounds, do you and Jim talk about the night in Miami or did, was that not in the book? I don't remember him saying anything about Sam
1: cook. He definitely was with and he and he didn't frame it as a night
0: in Miami,
1: you know, anything monumental, but I, but he did, it is in the book.
0: Mm-hmm. That's right.
1: That he was with Malcolm and Ali in Miami that
3: weekend. Um, and, you know, that was the kind of thing that really interested me about Brown. You know, it's, you don't get to sit down with too many people. He used to spend time with Malcolm X, uh, Muhammad yeah. Ali, and Richard Pryor. But so, yeah, he talks about it, but he, he didn't go into much detail. Now I wish he would have. Um, But, yeah, I don't remember him saying Sam pictures was there. Yeah. So, but, but but I do know that Mel, he said Malcolm was there and Ali was there. And he said Ali was just wild. Like, one time he said Ali told him that he was a new man, basically, because he was, you know, he had changed religions and he was basically chased. And Brown showed up, and, you know, Ali was in a hotel room, and like five women had stayed there like a horse. And, you know, so.
1: Yeah. Yeah, he had the other story he told about Ali. And you saw a little
3: this in the movie that he used to screw around sometimes and tell, he, tell Ali that he,
1: you know, he could kick his ass. Mm-hmm. And just laugh. And Ali would just look at him, you know, laugh. And he said, Brown said one day, uh, Angelo Dundee showed up at his house with a little like egg timer and two pairs of boxing gloves. And Ali and Brown went out in his driveway like a flat surface where there was a basketball court and started they they fought three rounds. And Brown said that Ali was just toying with him. You know, he wasn't trying to hurt him. But Ali's Brown said I couldn't lay a hand on him, number one, and I was completely exhausted, you know, after the first or second wow. round. And he said it, it kind of dawned on me then that you know, Ali was in fifty times better condition,
0: and that you know Brown just realized like I you know I couldn't do a thing with this guy. I'll tell you when I when I got to have a couple conversations with Jim Brown. I pressed him about the night in Miami. This was about six years ago, and one of the things he said he 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 said that he had to spend part of the time running interference because Malcolm was uh, was pressing Ali about okay it's great you're joining the nation, but I'm also starting this new organization. Maybe you could come with me. And and and, and Jim talked about, like, you know, Ali said to him, like, hey, I need your help here because this is a little too much pressure for what I'm dealing with right now. And I thought that was interesting. But I, And I thought the film, it hewed sort of, it, it touched on that. I mean, that's pretty radioactive stuff, but it, it, it had at least a scene on that. So, it, it was attempting to show something with some truth and not just be this kind of reimagining.
1: Yeah, I agree. And you got to decide. You know, you're looking at, you know, these guys are all, you know, all four main characters or these monumental figures in American history. And, you, you know, you're trying to condense the story literally into a night. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think they did a pretty good job. I was interested in that too. Um, you know, because that was an interesting part of Malcolm's life was, you know, the he was excommunicated.
0: Yeah. So. Yeah. I, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you uh, before. And I really do appreciate your time, Steve. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you. Um, you know, Jim Brown, four years ago, he makes a big point of of uh, criticizing John Lewis and sitting down with Donald Trump. Uh, seeing that evolution of Jim Brown, did that surprise you? It surprised
1: me, and it appalled me. You know, I got texts. I hadn't talked to Brown in, like, literally 25 years. You know, it's not like we were buddies or anything like that. We worked together, you know. I think that book came out, like, literally 30 years ago, maybe?
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, No, I was really turned off. And then he, you know, especially his comments on John Lewis, and you know, sitting down with Trump, with Kanye, who turned out to be, you know, another kind of, problematical guy, I guess has been for a long time. No, I was really kind of, you know, in a way it didn't surprise me. Brown, I think his general MO is that if I can get close to to people in power, I can make change. Mm -hmm. You know, I've heard him talk about that before, but, um, you know, I think also didn't he, when, you know, when, after the Kaepernick thing, didn't he tell the players they shouldn't be kneeling? Yep, sure did. Yes. So, I mean, you know, honestly, it's not my role as a white guy to tell Jim Brown what to do uh, yep. <laughs> as it relates to race relations. But if you're asking me a question, I'm going to answer you. And I was very turned off when I saw Brown with Trump. Um, you know, you don't want to normalize a guy like Trump to any degree. And, you know, there's still a lot of people in the black community that do look up to Brown yeah. for the roles that he's played in the civil rights movement. And so, yeah, I was a little bit uh, like, what the hell is he doing? So, and then in some ways he got pretty conservative, you know, over the years. I mean, yeah. it's hard to be more conservative than sitting down with Donald Trump, like he's your buddy and, and
0: saying, you know, negative things about John Lewis. Yeah, no, no doubt about that. Um... Quite quite the journey. And that, and that hurt a lot of people when he did sit down with Donald Trump. And I certainly heard that from more than a few people as well. You know, Steve, I also would be remiss if I didn't ask you. I'm, I'm sorry. This is a totally different topic. But um, I know for a lot of our listeners, they'd love to a peek behind the scenes on this. You know, you, you worked at ESPN and for Outside the Lines. Um, I would just love to ask you generally, what was the best and what was the worst part about working for ESPN?
1: Well, I had a different experience than a vast majority of people that worked at ESPN because I was at Outside the Lines for all 16 years. Mm-hmm. That is not the same as, you know, somebody working for Center, say, or any of the shows. So I had a great experience, you know. Uh, for your listeners that aren't, you know, completely familiar, you know, Outside the Lines does mostly investigative pieces, enterprise pieces. You know, I used to laugh and say, you know, in 16 years I never did a single story on whether, you know, the Dodgers were gonna have a good bullpen. <laughs> Sometimes I wanted to do a piece like that, you know, just to kind of decompress a little bit. So for 16 years I was doing interesting pieces on important topics. I don't know what went on behind closed doors, but I felt zero pressure from management to ever back down even a little bit on a story. And I'm talking not once. Mm. And, you know, we did our own thing there. And I worked with some really good journalists, you know, and, and, and a lot of them are still there. Um, and so my experience was, was truly great. Um, I loved it. I'm not that interested in sports, frankly, just for sports sake. I've always been interested in kind of, you know, social aspects and, you know, we did a lot of stories on cover-ups. You know, it's corny, but every once in a while I was able to do a story that did some good and that meant a lot to me. Um, Sometimes interviewed some people that the other media were ignoring or weren't aware of and kind of gave them a voice on national television. As far as the worst part, I really didn't have any bad experiences with Outside the Lines. Um, Right towards the end when I left, I did a piece on a cover-up at a uh, famous hockey high school in Minnesota. It was a boarding school. Um, It's where Sidney Crosby went and a bunch of other NHL players. And we did this piece. There was a guy that lived there, the head of the drama department was like a small time actor. He was uh, the head of the drama department. He was one of the people that kind of keeps an eye on the kids in the the various dorms. And he was a serial sexual molester. Mm. And we didn't break the story. NPR radio in Minnesota broke it. But we did the first TV piece. And I interviewed the first survivors, whoever went on camera. There were these two guys that were then, like, in their mid 20s, I think. Um, Very powerful piece. Very well documented. You know, that was the other thing about Outside the Lines. Like, if you didn't have it nailed down, it didn't get on the air. You know, we had, like, a lot of people, you know, on our team that would look at these pieces and make sure that we had our facts straight. You know, and I always, always erred on the side of not running stuff. If I didn't feel we had it, I was kind of obsessive about that. Mm. Um, But anyway, when the piece was in the can, they, somebody did a, you know, they did a promo, like a short, you know, teaser for TV, you know, like a, and uh, the school, the lawyers were pretty shady bunch to begin with they saw the trailer and they tried to bully outside the lines in ESPN into not running the piece. And myself and the people around me and on our team, we were said, you know, we're running the piece, but one of the executives above us, who was not a journalist, she was just a corporate guy, he was ready to fold, basically. He would have folded if we would have let him. Fortunately, mm-hmm. I had a couple of tough-minded bosses who said, no, we're, you know, we feel good about the piece. And, you know, I remember that. And then ironically, when I got laid off, guess who was the guy who called me to give me the news? Who? The, the same guy. No <laughs> I, way. I swear to God, yeah, yeah. Three-minute wow. phone call. I was there for 16 years. I mean, quite honestly, that was just like the cherry on top that it was him. You know, even if it had been one of my bosses who I loved, you know, I was still being laid off after 16 years. Oh, and this was also somewhat surreal. You know, I won a Peabody Award. I was nominated for an Emmy. I did a lot of good pieces over the years. And I won another award on a Tuesday. And I got laid off on Wednesday. Oh. And so that was kind of brutal. And it it was interesting because it was in the news that ESPN was going to lay off like 100 journalists or so, you know, which is a lot, you know, in one fell swoop, you know, and this was before all the layoffs in sports media, you know, we kind of started the trend, and so it was in the news, and everybody was trying to figure out, well, who's going to get laid off, and I was nervous, but in my heart of hearts, I thought I was going to make it. You know, my career was just humming along. I had that big piece about the cover up at the hockey high school. Mm -hmm. You know, then I win an award um, from a New York TV and film festival. And I just for some reason, I thought I was going to make it. And then ESPNers on the East Coast who were laid off were already starting to tweet about it. You know, they were saying, hey, I got laid off today. And so it's about 930 Pacific, and I'm seeing that the layoffs have already started, and I'm on the West Coast, and I get a phone call with an 860 area code, which is Bristol, Connecticut, and it's nobody's number who I recognize. You know, it's not my boss's, it's not one of my buddies, and so I knew in a second that I was done. And then I remember like in the three-minute phone call, this guy was on the phone with me and somebody from HR, who I'm sure that's the last place he wanted to be. And I remember I kind of went into shock a little bit, which sounds overdramatic, but for three minutes, my brain was just kind of floating through that conversation. And I remember they said, you know, we're going to pay you for the end of your contract. And the reporter and me kind of kicked in towards the end. And I said, so you're going to pay me for the end of my contract, right? And he said, yeah. And so you know, I wrote that down, and that was huge, honestly, because there were people that got laid off that had like two months left on their contract. I had sixteen, wow, which was gigantic. You know, um, it could have been much worse. So, yeah, but yeah, I, I loved outside the lines, and and the, you know, when I've said this before, some of the best reporters I know. I'm talking about outside the lines, are also some of the nicest people I know.
2: And I don't know if that's a
1: coincidence or not. Um, but, yeah, it was a great experience, and it was very different because we had our own corner of ESPN, and we would piss off the rest of ESPN sometimes. I did a cover-up at Penn State involving Joe Paterno that was pre-Sandusky that caused a lot of outrage and Happy Valley and the Penn State football you know, world. And, you know, Mike Tirico was going to Penn State in a week or two to announce a game, you know, and he was kind of irritated that we did this piece. You know, one time I did a piece on Duke basketball and whether their academic standards were the same for like men's basketball as they were for women's tennis, Mm -hmm. you know, and they weren't obviously. And Dick Vitale went on a North Carolina Duke game, I think it was, and said uh, basically, You know, I don't care what OTL says, baby. Duke doesn't write. (laughs) You know, so I'm watching TV and Dick Vitale's questioning, you know. And then they asked Jay Billis one time about that piece, actually. And Billis, to his credit, said, you know, because Billis went to Duke, obviously. And Billis, to his credit, said, you know, I stand by my colleagues at Outside the Lines. I think that was in the, the Chicago Tribune, you know. So we would piss people off and we didn't care. Is what you know. We didn't want to piss off our colleagues, but we didn't care. I certainly didn't care if we had the story right.
0: Well, I can. I, I agree. Outside the lines was such a special place, and it was it was appointment viewing for me for, for many many years. Um. Last question for you, Steve. I, I just I think our our listeners would love to know what are you doing now.
1: Well, right after I got laid off, I started to think, you know, if I can win an award on Tuesday and get laid off on Wednesday, I might want to think about doing something else. And so I tried to get another job in journalism for a while. And I could have got one, but they were not the kind of jobs I wanted. You know, I was a little bit spoiled, honestly. I didn't want to leave LA where my, you know, family is. And so I went into strategic communications. I opened up a one person firm. It's just a fancy way of saying PR basically. But I'm not like the prototypical PR person at all. Um, I don't spin reporters ever under any circumstances. Um, I don't work with jerks ever under any circumstances. I've turned down a fair amount of money because I didn't want to work with people that came to me. I don't do crisis PR, you know, which is kind of inherently unsavory. All I really do is connect my clients who are experts in their field uh, with journalists who are looking to interview experts in their field, or sometimes a journalist might want to do a story about a company that I work with. And so somebody once described me as a connector, and that's how I kind of think of it. I connect journalists who are always looking for legit experts to interview with people that are experts in their field, whether they be an attorney or somebody in you know who works in social media. Like one of my clients is who helps college athletes build their social media brands in the hopes that they can monetize those brands when nio goes through so that's what i'm doing now it's called delson strategies it's still weird to me frankly to not be a journalist um but i was able to reinvent myself you know at at like age 60 in a new industry and you know i always joke i've got some you know older children who seem to think they're still on the payroll to a degree You know, so I've got a lot of people that are kind of dependent on me financially to a degree at different times. And I'm grateful that I was able to change fields, still make a good living, support my family. I don't ever underestimate that. Um, But I'm still a reporter at heart and probably always will be.
0: Wow. Well, Steve Delson, that's a great note to end on. I, r- I really do appreciate your time. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Dave. I appreciate you having me on.
0: We'll be back right after this, after a quick word from the nation. Uh, the sponsor of this podcast, we're going to speak to Michael Lee about uh, his friendship with the late, great Sekou Smith. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and the nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you got to read. It's The Nation magazine. Go to com slash subscribe. And please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. I guess I'll just jump right on it. Like, uh, who was the... Sequ Smith that you knew.
2: Um, I, I knew I knew a great guy. Um, I knew somebody who made you feel better just for being in his presence. Um, I knew somebody who had just an incredible sense of humor, um, who could shoot it to you straight, tell you like it is. Somebody who you had to respect because you knew that he was coming from a sincere, genuine place every time you spoke to him. Um, he's just a somebody that. Like I said, every time I spent time with him, um, I always felt better after I left. him. Mm -hmm. So if um, he if I I was feeling down, if I was upset about if I was frustrated about something at work, I would never really express it. I would just go hang out with him at like the finals or all star weekend or just one of those events. We'd have lunch or dinner and I always felt better Um, just because he could take your mind off of that. And he just had this incredible ability to find common ground with any and everybody. Um, And everyone will always feel the same way after they left. And that's, he had a gift. Um, I don't even know I appreciated the gift, you know, until like these last couple of days of reflection where he's not around. Um, He had this incredible ability to just navigate through a room and touch everybody. and, and just do it his own unique way. You know, it's interesting because there have been so many tributes and, you know, tweets and comments about him and what kind of person he was. And everyone talked about what uh, a good heart he had, what a good uh, you know, spirit he had. Um, but I also know this is a guy who will cut you out in a heartbeat. Like, <laughs> he had, you know, one of the sharpest tongues that you could imagine. And if you crossed him, you were going to feel it and you were going to hear it and he wasn't going to back down and like that there's a way he just balanced everything and sort of keep it all together um, but you had to respect him and i have seen i've seen situations where you know he may have written an article about a player that upset him the player will go off on him he he could him, right, him out right back and by the end of the day they're their best friends laughing and joking like it never happened and mm-hmm. it's just the respect that he was able to just you know generate from people um you know from executives to you know the the security guard or the woman that served food at you know at at, at a restaurant it didn't matter who you were he treated you all the same um if you were larry bird or if you were just the guy who swept the floors he talked to you in the same way and you left feeling the same way about him um and that always impressed me you know when when i was like a young guy starting off covering the league started around the same time you know, I'd go in the locker room with him sometimes, and I'd marvel at just how he would work the room because of the way he would just talk stuff about guys' shoes. he talk about their haircut, and it was just like, <laughs> I'm like, how are you able to just so to move through the locker room so breezy and just talk to these guys this way and just have this sort of rapport with them? And it just, it just, it's just him. Um, it was just he had a gift, and. You know, I have a lot of memories of him. And, you know, one that, that sort of stands out to me was just recently, uh, back in 2017, I had just become a father. And um, uh, I went to Las Vegas for summer league. My son was about two months old. And we had dinner. Uh, and it was just two of us. And we were just talking about life and fatherhood. And, and the one piece of advice that he gave me, he said, if you can do it, you know, try to stay off the road if you can. Mm
3: -hmm. You
2: want to be there for your kids. And he said that it was one of the things that he didn't understand early on because, you know, he had three kids. And um, while his older two kids were growing up, he was on the beat. So he was always on the road, traveling, going to games. And you don't really understand how that affects your kids. Like, he's like, well, I'm working to provide for them. I'm working to give them a better life. But all they really want you there for is just to play with them. You know, and that's the stuff that's going to stick with him. So his younger son uh, was somebody who that once he got off the beat and he was like doing the NBA TV stuff and uh, NBA.com stuff, he was able to be home more. And so they had this special bond because they were able, they were always around each other and he could invest that time. And he just told me that if I had the chance, whatever I do in my job, just make time for your kids because – that's the type of connection that you want. That's the type of relationship you want. And it's like the best advice that I had just from anybody. Everybody told me about things to do as a father. But that's what resonated with me. And I respected him and I knew him as a father and how much he loved his kids. And for him to say that to me, I was like, Well, that's I gotta that's how I gotta be with my kids. I gotta be there for them. And um, so yeah, that's that's the sequel I knew. It's just a guy who just had this amazing ability to make you feel better um, and to make you laugh. I mean, he just had this incredible sense of humor. And on Twitter, I described him as, you know, a shit talker (laughs) Um, because that's what he did better than anybody else. Like Mm -hmm. if you got into a debate with him, you got an argument with him um you just prepare to get dragged because he was going to take you all the way there and you 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 weren't gonna get upset you were just gonna laugh and just try to come back with something else but um at the end of the day uh he was gonna make sure that you knew how he felt yeah he he certainly wasn't
0: patient with my annual belief that the wizards were going to surprise (laughs) um just like he's like come on dave come on
2: yeah how you feeling about that now
0: not 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 great right now. Now that they're <laughs> the subject of national debate about how things could be so terrible, <laughs> um, it's crazy. Someone pointed out they were 22 minutes of NBA jump was devoted to the Wizards, and I was just like, "Why? Why are they doing this?" But that's the sort of thing Sekou would have loved to point out. I, I want. I was going. You answered this question. I was going to ask about. Um, about how his passing impacted so many. And just, I think for a lot of folks outside the basketball community, there was a surprise that I heard from people that, that, you know, the grief was so deep. I think you answered beautifully why that was the case. But I I did want to ask you, like, how, how rare do you think it is? Like we heard a lot of grief from not just reporters and writers and colleagues, but players and Adam Silver and Steve Kerr and Stan Van Gundy. And I just want to ask, how rare is that that somebody is able to have that kind of impact on all corners of the basketball world?
2: Yeah. And it's not even just that. I mean, like I said, um, you know, it just, you don't find many people with a hundred percent, but he had it. And like I said, it's just, it was just because of how, you know, you, you always felt better in his presence, you know? And the one thing about him is that I didn't realize this until the last couple of days is that, I mean, I knew he was a, a great person. I knew he was somebody that was really cool, but you don't really understand how great somebody is when they make it look easy. And that's just how he is. Like, he was able to really navigate an incredible career in the NBA, you know, as, as, a, as a reporter, as a commentator and analyst, but he did it so effortlessly. He made it seem like he wasn't trying that hard, but he was the one that was breaking stories and getting scoops and establishing these relationships in a way that you know a lot of play, a lot of reporters can, a lot of reporters envy. I mean, um and I always admired that, and I didn't even understand the scale of how much he helped other people, you know, because mm. I'm just looking at it just based on my, my my interactions with him, and I know how special he was in my interactions with him, but then I realized that He's like that with everybody. The thing that stood me out is that everybody has the same Sekou story, but it's a different story because he connected with them on a different level. Um, you know, like we connected because we both went to black colleges and I have known him for like half my life. I've known him for half my life. He went to Jackson State, I went to Florida A and M. And we were both guys from black colleges trying to make it in the in, in the professional sports, you know, writing. And and like so we had that connection early on and, and You know, and then we, you know, hit it off on just other things, and then we started covering the NBA together. Um, You know, we really, you know, we're always around each other at at different events, and you know, we we always had to make time for each other just to hang out. We always hung out with groups, and then we hung out as individuals, and um, and it it was just he's just that that type of guy that you know, um, if he was from Michigan, right. Um, But He went to college in Mississippi. Yeah, he's from Grand Rapids. And one thing he always always say that uh, used to crack me up was um, he said the three greatest people that come out of Grand Rapids were um, Floyd Mayweather Jr., Marvin Sapp, and him. (laughs) And I would always laugh because, you know, you, you would always say, well, yeah, I mean, Marvin Sapp is like great gospel music legend and... Floyd Mayweather's the the, the the champ, you know, boxing champ. You like, you know, you are you just you a sports guy, right? You know, you don't think much of it because he's your friend, but then you see him, you know, unfortunately, passing, and you see the the scale of, you know, of, of the impact that his life had, and you realize, you know what, he was selling himself short. <laughs> you know, he true greatness, and um, and you know, I'm going to miss him. Um, you know, just from the aspect of you know his laughter. His candor, um, his honesty, just you know, just and he was somebody I trusted um, when I was when I made a lot of my career decisions. You know, he was there, you know, rallying and and encouraging me. You know, Um, when I left the AJC to go to the Washington Post, I mean, he was telling me how important it was for me to, you know, take this opportunity. And that they don't come around that often, you know, for for black writers to be able to get at the Washington Post like I had to get in that door and make sure. That I achieved and that other people could come through and follow me. Lastly because I took the job at the post and then he wanted to replace me at the AJC <laughs> and mm-hmm. he was covering the Hawks and did a great job there obviously. Um, and so but and, and, you know from there from when I went to Yahoo and um, Athletic and, and back to the post I mean he's just somebody that you always wanted to uh, just go over things and, and you know it's, it's funny it's not funny this week was like really emotional. Um, you know I, I over the last couple weeks have been emotional ever since he was hospitalized I knew about it and the minute I heard that he was in the hospital you know I broke down and just I cried like I just I couldn't really think about not having him around and so I sort of had a little time to prepare that this might happen and then when it happened I still didn't want to believe it and I still you know broke down again Um, and it was weird um, because you know I just I just wrote a story um, about uh, Colin Hill. He's a running back for Mississippi State. And uh, he um, put out a tweet last summer about how he wasn't going to play, that they didn't change the flag. And so they got the ball rolling. Now Mississippi has a new flag. And so over the course of me reporting on this story, I started to think a little bit about, you know, my family history because my great grandfather was from Mississippi, but I didn't know anything other than that. And so I started pressing my uncles and trying to just get more information about that, and so I found out where my where my great grandfather was from. Now Sekou um, moved to Jackson State and he worked for the Clarion Ledger for a while, covering you know Ole Miss and Mississippi State football. So I know he knew every corner of that state, and I my hope was that I would be able to talk to him about where my grandfather was from. Maybe he'd give me some perspective, and you know help me understand. So I, I was I was hoping to have that conversation with him never gonna have that conversation with him. And you know, not that I needed him to help me connect the dots to my family, but it would have just been cool to have that conversation with him. So now I'm thinking about all the conversations that I'm never gonna be able to have with my friend. And that makes me sadder. It makes me more upset. Um makes me upset about the fact that we haven't been able to, you know, you know, hold off this, this coronavirus. We've done nothing. Um, to make it better, and now it's taken out the people, somebody I love. Now I've had people, um, you know, come, have coronavirus and survive it, um, but I always was worried about him, um, you know, because I know he had other health issues in the past, and I was worried that this would be, you know, kind of exploited by the by the virus. And unfortunately, it was, but, um, you know, today's, today's, I don't know, if I, I can say what day it is, but today is January 30th. Sure and um uh this time last year he had just posted a podcast on um, kobe bryant's death Mm -hmm. and uh for hang time his hang time podcast after kobe died and he uh contacted me and mark spears and um he and marker are really tight and i was fortunate that they allowed me in their circle for a bit because they were like big brothers to me um but i always felt like we were just cool you know um but when kobe died he contacted us because he said i wanted to have two guys that i know that i've been in this business with the whole way through and i just want to have a conversation i don't want to do a typical podcast where i ask questions i just want to just talk and i know you two are the best people for this and we're just gonna have a real conversation and it felt good that one he, he wanted us to be in and on him and then um and then we did have a conversation we talked about kobe we talked about our memories with him and in our relationships with him and stories, we share stories. But then we talked about our own mortality and just how much it meant that, you know, we were able to have these friendships with each other and still had this time to connect with each other. And so he died on Kobe's, the anniversary of Kobe's death. And so the minute I heard how he died, I I thought about that conversation that we had. I thought about how, you know, I was one of the people that he wanted to talk to about that and just, It just felt just kind of cruel because I had intentionally blocked out social media that day because I didn't really want to deal with Kobe's death and and what that meant for me and how that impacted me. I didn't know Kobe's death was going to impact me the way it did last year, but it did. And a year later, you know, one of my good friends is gone on the same day. um, And I just had to reflect on that. And, man, it's just it's hard. Um, but he was just a great person, and I think that's what everyone's getting a sense of, but I do want to say that, you know, it, it's it's funny that everyone talks about what a sweet person he is, but everybody who knows Seeku knows that um, <laughs> he will tell you to your face just what he thinks of you, <laughs> and I, that's, that's what I love about him, and that's why everybody, uh, I think, had love for him, because you don't come across many people who are going to be that real with you that straight with you um but then have you just busting out laughing before it's all over
0: Mm. what do you think the best possible tribute would be to his memory for individuals i mean there's a there's a collective tribute that people can do in that there you know there's a scholarship that already that's been launched at jackson Jackson in his yeah that people can give to and i've put that out on my um Twitter feed, people can check that out. But so that that's what people can do if they want to, uh, to, to to just add to the memory of, of Sekou Smith and the tributes to Sekou Smith. But what do you think is the best possible personal tribute to his memory in terms of who we are and how we act towards one
2: another? Well, always be true to yourself. You know, always be yourself, and that that's that's the one thing that about Sekou too is that. I remember when we first started covering the league. I was I was pretty young when I first got started, and I didn't have, when I, my very first year on the beat, I didn't have any dress clothes. I had like a couple of pair of slacks and maybe a couple of sweaters, and so I thought I, I thought I had to like look a certain way uh, as an NBA writer. And I started buying suits, and and I liked the suits after a while. So that, that became sort of my thing. But I, I wore the suits primarily so I could look a certain way to. Uh, you know, coaches and GMs, and they would talk to me. You know, they didn't see me as like a, a, a young kid covering the league. Um, but Seku wasn't like that. Seku was wearing whatever he had. You know, and and he, and he was wearing jeans and and some a fresh pair of kicks and and uh, maybe a zip up sweater and and uh, and that's that was it. And you were going to accept him for who he was. And he he didn't care about you know that 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 part you know he didn't like wearing ties he wasn't gonna wear a tie when he wound up going to uh nba tv you know he always wore turtlenecks you know because he just didn't like wearing ties and that was him and being himself allowed him every step of the way to just move forward so i would just say don't try to be who you think you should be you know admire somebody for their work admire what they do um but you don't have to try to be like them to be great there's enough within you um if you believe in yourself and you can navigate through all these worlds by just being who you are and being a senior a genuine sincere person um and that's 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 that to me is what saku always represented is just somebody who was always true to himself um always represented who he was and um and, and was just a real, just genuine, good person who looked out for people um, and and who encouraged people and who motivated people and didn't care who you were. He didn't put people on a scale of importance. He didn't say, well, you know, that guy is a janitor. I don't really need to know him, you know, but right. he's like, hey man, you know, you're the security guard for the, for, uh, for the, in the arena. I walk past you every day. So I need to know who you are and I need to that you know who I am. And he would do that. He would engage with whoever he ran across and, and, and it would just be automatic. And that, that's a gift. And that's not something that everybody possesses. Not everybody is as sociable and as, uh, as maybe Sekou could be. Um, But, um, but just, just treat everybody mm-hmm. the way you would like to be treated, be, be who you are. And, um, and that 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 I think that's the best way to tribute. Uh, you know, not your best best tribute you can you can have for Sekou is just be who you are, and be respectful for everyone you come across. Because there there were people who I know that he didn't necessarily get along with. He didn't necessarily agree with them politically. He didn't necessarily like how they how they may have acted towards other people, but they wouldn't know it, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> because he didn't really care about you know, um, you know, making someone feel bad or making somebody feel uncomfortable in his presence. He just wanted to like go through life and, and not waste his energy on things that didn't, didn't require it. Um, but, um, and I think that's, that's what made him such a, such a great person and why he connected with so many people is just, um, because he always, he always sought the common ground. He always sought like, what can you bring us together? How can we talk about anything, just have a conversation without looking at what makes us different. And I think that's what made that's what made him so special. Oh, said, said perfectly,
0: absolutely perfectly. And,
2: and you, you put it so
0: well. I mean, we're, we all can't have the easy sociability and charisma that Sekou certainly had in bunches, but we can all strive to treat people well no matter where they are on the particular rung where we work or where we socialize. I mean, that's something I think we all could work on in this world and Sekou was able to make it look so easy. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for your time, man. I really do appreciate it.
2: Yeah. Thanks for having me on. I mean, I think a lot of this is sort of cathartic to be able to talk about him. Um, You know, I, I don't think I can write about them, but I know I can just, kind of rattle off you know my memory memories of him um it it, it's just tough to to lose somebody like that and um and you know it's 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 tough for his kids i know it's gonna be hard for them um and his wife heather i know that there's gonna be some difficult days and um you know months and weeks ahead but um but I, i i hope that They at least can find some solace in that that Sekou was was a was not only somebody who they loved, but somebody who was beloved by everyone who came in contact with him.
0: Word up, very true. That's Michael Lee from the Washington Post. Everybody, Uh, we'll be back after this. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there, this is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now, some choice words. At first, the headline looked like something divined from the minds at The Onion. Florida. Florida has thrown its hat into the ring to host the postponed 2020 Olympic Games that are due to take place in Tokyo this summer. Since 80% of Japan's residents believe that hosting a super-spreader event in the middle of a pandemic might not be the best use of resources or worth the risk, Florida's Trumpist state government in vulture-like fashion are putting their foot forward even if that foot is sinking into the Atlantic Ocean with the rest of southern Florida due to global warming. The state's chief financial officer, the cinematically named Jimmy Petronas, Sent a letter to the International Olympic Committee stating, quote, Today I am writing to encourage you to consider relocating the 2021 Olympics from Tokyo, Japan, to the United States of America, and more specifically to Florida. Petronas, which is this is per his custom, kissed the behind of his Trumpist governor, Ron DeSantis, for his quote unquote handling of the pandemic, writing, When most of the major states were shutting down their economies, we were fortunate enough to have a governor that recognized the importance of fighting the virus and keeping the economy open. This is, of course, a lie. DeSantis' handling of the pandemic has been a disaster. Even with his efforts to keep the deleterious health effects a secret... We know that Florida has reported more than 25,000 deaths and 1.7 million coronavirus cases, and that's collectively the fourth most of any U.S. state. Petronas even included his phone number on the public letter as a way to encourage the global super spreader to come to his state. Their efforts have gained so much immediate traction that the media asked Joe Biden's spokesperson, Jen Psaki, about the possibilities. She referred people to the IOC and the USOPC. As for the USOPC, they reiterated their support for Tokyo, which brands Patronus' ploy as a rogue effort seemingly designed to burnish the reputation of the state and kiss his bosses behind more than a serious effort. But let's take it seriously for a moment and consider just what it would mean for Florida to host the Olympics. This is a state that has been run into the ground by DeSantis with spiraling COVID rates, massive tax giveaways for the rich, persistent poverty, and police violence. Florida, for all its ostentatious wealth, is one of the poorest states in the country, with 7% of its population living on less than $10,000 a year. Now imagine the Olympics coming to town amidst this level of crisis. It's a recipe for dystopia. When one considers the debt, displacement, and hypermilitarization protecting rich from poor, that the Olympics bring, one is tempted to argue that Florida's masses won't be able to tell the difference from a typical day under DeSantis' thumb. But as the Olympics have shown, it can always get worse. And worse is something Florida cannot afford. The suggestion by Florida's chief financial officer that the Olympics be transferred to the Sunshine State is certainly worthy of a jokey headline conjured from those minds at The Onion. But hosting the Olympics is no joke for everyday people, even under non-COVID conditions. Enough is enough. In the name of global public health, it's time to cancel the 2020 Summer Games. Amid a raging pandemic where more than 2.2 million people have already died from COVID across the globe, Pressing ahead with the Olympics is beyond quixotic. It's a slow motion train wreck. Train wreck. And one that could be avoided with a sensible stroke of a pen. And that piece was co-written with Jules Boykoff. Shout out to you, Jules. Now it's time for the part of the show that we call Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down. The Just Stand Up Award this week goes to Kamiya Adams-Beal. That is the partner, wife, of Bradley Beal, of my Washington Wizards. If you haven't been following the NBA news, Bradley Beal is leading the NBA in scoring, and the Wizards can't win a game. Uh, Bradley Beal is playing his heart out every single night, and the Wizards keep continuing to lose. Bradley Beal's face at the end of games is becoming a meme unto itself. As people are just amazed at him showing his pain so explicitly on the bench. And Camille Adams-Beal, she put out a very simple uh, tweet after a wizard's 20-point loss. And when I say a wizard's 20-point loss, it's pretty much like saying every wizard's loss. She just wrote, The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. I can't believe I'm saying this about a generationally great player like Bradley Beal, but I hope he gets traded because he deserves to play in a big-time atmosphere. And I'll tell you this right now. There is no way that Mr. Uh, Bradley Beal deserves to sync with this Wizards organization. Good luck out there, Brad. Hopefully by the time this plays, you will have been traded. Now it's time for the Just Sit Down Award. The Just Sit Down award this week so ass down. goes to somebody on Twitter, I don't even know who their name is, but they said that Tom Brady is the best athlete in the history of American sports. And the aftermath of him making his tenth Super Bowl with the Tampa Bay Bucks. Let's forget for a second that Tom Brady threw three interceptions in that NFC championship game against the Green Bay Packers and wasn't even the best player on his own team. Forget about that just for a second because this person is talking about Brady's cumulative career. Not only would I say that I can name half a dozen athletes without even blinking who I would put ahead of Tom Brady from Serena Williams to Muhammad Ali to Jim Thorpe to Jim Brown, for that matter. Uh, one reason why I would never say that Tom Brady is the best athlete, and people may disagree with this, and that's just fine, is because he's a white athlete. He's a white male athlete. And I would argue that because of the history of racism and bigotry in American sports, it's impossible to say that a white athlete is the best athlete. For the simple reason that white athletes do not have to carry the burden of representation every time they take the field. Tom Brady gets to just focus on football. Think about what Muhammad Ali had to focus on when he was boxing. Or the three years when he wasn't boxing, only to come back. Think about what Serena Williams carries on her shoulders. And then think about Tom Brady. Think about all the scandals that Tom Brady's been involved in over the years, from Video Gate to Deflate Gate. And think about how little he's had to sort of answer for that in a way that's collective. As if, Tom Brady, you cheat. What is it about white people in cheating? What kind of music do they listen to? Their genes sag. I mean, these are things that Tom Brady doesn't have to deal with, let alone racism chirped at him from politicians because, you know, he gets too mouthy. That's never been part of Tom Brady's life. So it's allowed him to skate and focus on being a quarterback. So I can never call Tom Brady or any white male athlete the greatest in the history of American sports because it's ahistorical, it's decontextual, And it just doesn't work. Doesn't pass the intelligence test. So whoever wrote that tweet, sit your ass down.
2: Sit your ass down.
0: And also before we go, you know, this is a heavy show because we're saying goodbye to Seku Smith. uh, Great friend of the show. Great friend of me when I was coming up. uh, Always there. But I also want to say goodbye to a legend. Uh, Mr. John Chaney. John Chaney, the longtime coach of Temple University. John Chaney, uh, somebody who passed away just this past week, um, 89 years old. And what John Chaney did that was so amazing is, you know, whether it was his 24 seasons at Temple, uh, whether it was his 17 NCAA tournament appearances, whether it was the fact that he had the number 1 team in 1987 1988 with uh, Mark Macon if people remember that name what made him amazing was that John Chaney was just this outspoken opponent of the racism of the NCAA during a time where you know that was definitely something that could get you in a lot of trouble and you know they called John Chaney Little John with John Thompson was Big John you know these two black coaches taking on the system And, you know, we just lost John Thompson, and now we lose John Cheney. And, you know, these are sad days. But, you know, the example, like Sekou Smith, the example that John Cheney left is something that really is going to stand the test of time and make us collectively stronger if we're willing to learn the lessons of his life of perseverance and resistance. Well... That's all the time we have for this week's show. Thank you so much to Steve DelSone. Of course, thank you so much to Michael Lee. And for everybody out there listening, tell someone that you care about that you do care about them. And also, don't forget to treat everybody with the respect that you'd want to be treated, no matter where they are on the ladder rung of the social order of this country. That's the best tribute to Smith. So for everybody out there listening, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace.